0: Welcome to The SenCast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of The SenCast. We started The Sendcast a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. There is lots of stuff you can go and read but we're all really busy and we don't have time to sit and go through it all. Everyone working in schools needs training and support around SEND but the funding isn't there to achieve this. We created The SenCast try to help solve that problem to help make schools more inclusive to help teachers be teachers of SEND and to help support staff be more aware. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same consistent message to school's parents. Every week on the Sendcast, we have a different guest on that's come to talk about an area they are passionate about. And my guest this week is Joanna Grace. Joanna is a sensory engagement and inclusion specialist, and Joanna has come along to talk about sensory stories and what an amazing resource they are. Before we get started, the CENCAST is created and produced by us here at B-Squared and over the last 25 years, B-Squared have supported schools to support students with SEND. Over the last few years, we have diversified. For years, we've focused on assessment and showing the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make and this will always be our focus, but we have seen a lack of high quality, easy to access training and CPD for schools around SEND. Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started three years ago with a virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses by going to the Training for Education website, www.trainingforeducation.com. At the end of the episode, I'll be sharing an exclusive SENDcast discount code, so keep listening. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing sensory stories and how amazing they can be to engage learners of all abilities. Discussing this topic with me is Joanna Grace. Joanna is a sensory engagement inclusion specialist, doctoral researcher, author, trainer, TEDx speaker, and founder of the sensory project. And Joanna has worked with people with learning disabilities and neurodivergent conditions aged from birth to 87. Welcome to the show, Joanna.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, you're welcome. So. Today's topic is sensory stories and social stories have been hugely popular for years and seen them used in lots of different places. Sensory stories don't seem to have the same popularity as I mentioned just before we started recording I googled them in a group I'm in and I couldn't find anything on them that could be Facebook's algorithm or something but so let's start with the basics what are sensory stories?
1: Well I suppose sensory stories are the hidden gem of special education and I think of them being hugely popular so I was surprised you didn't find any in your group but That's probably because the people that I meet know about sensory stories because they book me because I wrote a book about sensory stories. So it's a skewed perception. They are, oh gosh, where to start? I think I am their number one fan. So I, I know I said I wrote a book about them. And sometimes I get cited as you know, sensory stories started by Joe Grace. And in no way am I the start point. I am literally the person who is most excited about them <laughs> so i've written lots of sensory stories and i've had some sensory story children's books published i first came across them when i was a teacher in a special school and i had a class of mixed ability children i had in my class i had ah uh, let me think that first class i had a little autistic boy who was achieving beyond his mainstream peers he was just in my class because he couldn't handle the mainstream environment and i also had children who from an academic point of view would have been a, you know, at a similar level to a baby. So I had, when you talk about differentiating your curriculum, I had to differentiate my curriculum by each individual child, yeah. not just upper, middle, and lower ability. And I really wanted something that my class could do all together. And then whilst I was in that class, my school had a discussion about our placement of children with profound and multiple learning disabilities who in our school and in a lot of schools were placed in their own particular classroom in recognition of their medical care needs and things like that. And they were saying that they are experiencing a kind of double segregation. They're being sent to a special school and then they're being put in a special class in the special school. And we just wanted to be a bit more inclusive. So once a week, we were going to have the peer aged children from that special class attend our classes and as a teaching staff we were asked about this and I was super on board with the plan thought it was a great plan wasn't quite sure how I was going to manage it in the classroom because I need to teach a lesson that's intellectually challenging enough for my autistic guy um, but is meaningful to the people who are visiting who've got very profound Cognitive and physical disabilities and limited mobility, and you know, all sorts going on. What on earth am I going to do? And it was Wednesdays that these lessons used to happen. And so I used to spend all of my weekends, all of my evenings, all of my holidays going, What will I do on Wednesday? What will I do on Wednesday? (laughs) It was the sort of mantra of my life at the time. And I would plan these sessions, and either I'd have, you know, some amazing session that kept the children in my class occupied, engaged, and my autistic guy you know had a lot of information rich content that he could really sink the teeth of his brain into and the two children who came in from the special care class they would be in the room yep. you know he's like well I was I was welcoming I was glad they were there but it didn't really feel like being inclusive you know you can't really pat yourself on the back for just allowing them to park nearby whilst your class do something yep. and so then I'd go away and I'd plan the next session and I think well it needs to start from something tangible to them and they have intellectual disabilities such that they maybe can't lay down memory, can't anticipate the future. What they have is the present and they have their senses. So I need to engage with them in a sensory and I plan these wonderful sensory sessions. And that sort of thing really tickles my boat because I love playing with like cardboard boxes and junk. And you go out into your shed and find something that feels really interesting or something that smells really odd. And I'd cut and build my lesson around these things. And I'd create something that was really engaging for them, but I would lose the attention of my more intellectually capable learners. <laughs> and so it continued. I, I was, I was just, I'm just sort of hesitating to wonder whether to tell you what actually used to happen. What actually used to happen is that one child in my class used to take off all his clothes and run away if the lessons weren't interesting. And he was really, really good at it. He could get undressed really quickly. I remember there was a target that I used to have to sign them off on that was whether they could dress and undress independently. And he had got undressing down. He was fine. I wasn't sure about the dressing independently, but undressing, he was super at. So if you didn't, it's a really good measure, actually, for whether you're teaching appropriately, whether you're creating engaging <laughs> content. Because if he, if he streaks, you know you fail. It's like having a barometer. And I would lose and we actually, I had a buzzer in my classroom that I could press that radioed the fastest runners in school because, I mean, obviously it's very bad to lose a child if you're a teacher and you're responsible for the class. It is especially bad if they're naked and it is much worse if they're disabled because by the time you've lost a naked disabled, child you're hitting sort of local news level aren't you and then he used to run to the road because he was very interested in cars so if you lose a naked disabled child in traffic you will be hitting you'll be the headline of the sun won't you so as a school we were very keen that this not happen and so I'd press the button and the fastest runners which all worked in the upper school with the children who've got longer legs they wouldn't chase after him they'd run up to the road and then kind of bring him back from there. It was a PR strategy mostly. And so it was really important for me to work out what to do on Wednesdays. And one of the other teachers in the school, I'm really good at creative practice, and I'm good at engaging with differently able people, but I'm pretty rubbish at working as part of a team. So I hadn't actually mentioned to anybody that I was struggling with Wednesdays. And the teacher in the class next door to me noticed Probably because the number of times she'd seen the street go past her window. And she said, Joe, have you ever tried a sensory story? And she handed me this box with a sensory story in. And it was like, you know, it's like that hallelujah moment yeah. that, ah, here, here is the answer. Here is the thing. This is this. And they were extraordinary because I could tell a sensory story to my whole class. Everybody was engaged. And that that particular class represents a really huge spectrum of abilities and since then i've told sensory stories i've told them at universities to you know not special needs universities just straight at universities i've done them in mother and toddler groups the whole gamut you can get anybody in sensory story if it's if it's a well crafted one and we could tell that sensory story and we could all be in that story together and so I felt like we were connected as a class. That was that was an inclusive moment. And then I'd give them different activities to do and everybody would go away and do an activity as appropriate to them. And then we'd come back at the end and we'd share the story again. And from that point on, I think I taught every lesson. It, like PE was done through sensory stories, RE, cooking, everything, everything was a sensory story. And it would be really neat if I said, you know, so I did that. And then I set up the sensory stories project, which is the first of the sensory projects. The gap between those things happening is about 11 years. And within that gap, I read up on lots of the research to do with the senses and engagement to do with storytelling. And so I got more informed and I you know, met knew more children and had different classes and worked at different settings so that I could bring more to it. But your question was, what's a sensory story? I've got a better question
0: now. So, better question now.
1: Well, it is this wonderful hallelujah moment. A sensory story is concise text, so they typically have about eight to ten sentences in them. And that concise text is partnered with rich and relevant sensory information. And the the richness is really key. What was your better question? Did he stop streaking? <laughs> yeah, I lost him considerably less often. Yes. That's good. Yes. That's good. I don't imagine he stopped streaking completely it's a talent yes
0: something he'll find a use for it somewhere i remember going to a school um and i was in the head teacher's office and he had this really long drive really long drive and he goes i like this school The drives really long we can get in the car and get to the gate before they can
1: oh
0: <laughs> and he goes yeah. a good day is when i don't see a child run down that hill
1: <laughs> well it's a very clear communication isn't it, it? Is. you are not holding my attention i don't like it here I do not like those yes these are all perfectly valid things to be saying
0: but as you sit there going yeah i've never really taken that into consideration and the number of schools though, over the last couple of years who've had to deal with children running out not just the classroom but off property and
1: yeah how
0: resourceful they are that's what they that's what they were really going yeah he's actually learned where the wheelie bins are and how to get on top of the bins and over that fence <laughs> Yeah. so yeah fascinating the resources anyway we're moving off topic here
1: oh yeah Okay. i think just to put i was a new teacher then and i was only reacting to that behavior after it happened and i quite often witness conversations online normally to do with more extreme behavior to do with violent behavior and things like that where people are Working out what to do, how to hold people, how to punish people, how to put um, deterrence in place—isn't it not punish it's deterrence? All of that stuff it's all just a really clear communication that something different should have happened before. Yes, <laughs> half half the amount of time spent thinking about what to do before saves you an awful lot of trouble, but you don't have many entertaining stories. No, no.
0: I think yeah, I done a lot. Um, someone and I think one of them was power of mood. How your mood and how your expectation around that, how that has an impact on situations. So saying someone to head teacher raises anxiety, more likely to kick off. Yeah. Actually.
1: You make the weather in your classroom.
0: Yeah. So all this stuff, and it was really fascinating to listen to it. And he's done a lot, and there's lots of people talking about how the typical way of doing things generally makes things worse. And you're yeah. seeing the behavior then, actually the cause was much, much, much earlier.
1: It frightened me when the conversations around that put it on, child i i I read conversations where people are saying you know these kids with special needs are getting worse or these kids with you know "I, i i you don't know what my job is like because i have to deal with these children you know and it's that bit of the conversation is these children it's like there's some sort of special phenomenon going on and that just because you have a learning disability or a neurodivergent condition that you're in some way Different in that regard. And I think if I was to imagine what sort of situation I would have to be in to be stressed enough to run away, that's how we should respond. It shouldn't be, oh, he's got a learning disability, so he ran away. It's like, oh my goodness, he was that stressed. Because it still means the same thing, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. And we were, (laughs) as a school, we were just guarding against, you know, appearing in the sun when. The reaction should have been something much more significant for that little boy.
0: Yeah, but there's so many schools. I read things, and nice. I we someone we 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 did a tweet when we were doing one of our conferences, and Lorraine Peterson shared there was a slide doing the number of pupils and D who are permanently excluded, and we put that up. Yeah, and there were comments that went which came quite quickly were so negative. It's, so, yeah, funny that all our SEND children are the ones excluded. It seems to be all the ones who are going to be, we put the SEND label on just to make them feel better. Wow. And you, you use all this, literally, just not going like, oh, so what's your job? And look at it. And it's somebody who goes around the country teaching people how to teach English. And they're like, you just don't get it. You don't get that for that person to do this, what would it take for you to do that?
1: yeah that's it. It means the same that we the label that you need as well as the label that describes the difference is human and and that one comes first, doesn't it?
0: and when you're saying you don't want you have what to I have to deal with it. it's like you know, put your eyes in that person that child's position about that if they're literally going, I just want to run out of your class or i would rather get into trouble yeah, it, get excluded and hit thing, someone, isn't it? than be in here
1: yeah. Because in order to be able to put yourself in that position, you have to take a step back. And teaching is currently such a pressured and stressful profession. Yeah. Who has the time or the mental capacity to take that step back? I I work globally now. And so I watch how education systems run in different countries. And it's very big differences in different countries and I'm very carefully not mentioning the names of any countries just like I wouldn't mention children's names but there are setups that are so clearly exacerbating problems and the people within those setups believe that this is normal and believe that this is because the children are the way that they are and they won't get the chance to take that step back and take a bigger view and I in that classroom you know I'm sat here saying you know you should do these things but in the classroom, I didn't because I was trying to work out what to do on Wednesdays. I was that was filling all my time. I wasn't thinking, "Oh, he's running away. Wonder why he's running away." I was just thinking, "That's what that kid does. That kid runs away. That's his thing." So yeah, it's it's very easy to know the right things to do, and it's very difficult to have the time and capacity to do it.
0: And let's not start on there not being enough SEN training in initial We're teacher to be training. Be doing about 10, are, oh, well, I was thinking. About no, it was like, I two
1: hours of SEN training in my initial teacher training. And when I challenged that on the day, they said, "If you want to specialize in SEN, you can pick that up in your continuing CPD." As if you're not going to meet a child with additional needs in the classroom on day one of teaching. Yes. Who'd have thought? Who'd
0: have thought that might mm. happen? So sensory stories, let's get back to the top. Yeah. Let's back to sensory <laughs> so stories. So sensory
1: stories, yes.
0: So you talked about there being sort of eight to ten lies, concise text, and then sensory yep. material to go alongside. Yes. Yeah. So what are you talking about, that sensory material? What are we talking
1: about? So I talk about rich sensory stimulation and relevance. So the relevant bit is easy. It's got to be relevant to part of the text that it's about. It's no good just having a great sensory experience, and chucking it in anywhere. Um, the richness of a sensory experience, it's, I mean, obviously everything is sensory. So another thing that your listeners might have come across is story sacks. And story sacks are a great way of engaging children in the early years in stories. You have a sack of like little pictures of characters from the story or little puppets from the story. And as you tell the story, you bring these things out of bag and, you know, interact yeah. with them with the children. And they're just that sort of reveal of them coming out of the bag makes them curious, engaged in it, adds something to it. And it's lovely. Um, and they're brilliant and they're a great resource. They're not a sensory story because sometimes people will do a sensory story and it'll be like uh, a story about a cat. And so they put a cuddly toy cat into the box that's going to be their sensory resource and go, this is the sensory experience. Like, what is that? Is that a visual experience? Because that's just a splodge of black. You know, there's no reason... Why my eyes are going to look at that, if I'm in a typical classroom, my eyes are far more likely to be drawn to the you know the bright painting on the wall or the neon strip overhead, or you know something flashing by the window. There's no visual reason why I would look at that splodge of black. There's an intellectual reason I would look at that splodge of black because I recognize that it's a representational object. That represents an animal that exists in the real world. And it's that animal that exists in the real world that this fictional animal within the story is about. That's pretty abstract. That's a massive, it's a massive cognitive task. Most typically developing little children aren't getting that. They just think you're telling a story about the cat that you're holding. And for a child who's not necessarily able to understand language or who has intellectual differences, that's just, yeah, you're not going to get that. So visually, it's got to draw the attention of your vision or fill your whole vision. You know, something like a piece of coloured cellophane that you look through. Everything you see changes when you look through a piece of colour. It's a massive visual experience. Yeah. So I want, when I'm auditioning sensory experiences for their richness, that's my, um, <laughs> it's, it goes a bit Monty Python because it's like the two things <laughs> and then it's the three. Um, it, it, it's got to draw the attention of the sense or it's got to fill a whole sense, and then if I slipped into a few more, I I do also always look for developmentally relevant sensory experiences because all of our senses have a development that they go through, and the stuff from early sensory development is easier for our brain to process than the stuff from later on. So, like if you think of the senses as being a curriculum, yeah. if I was going to teach you math, I'd start out with counting, and then I'd do adding, and you know, I build you up to multiplication and trigonometry and abstract. Differentiation or something with just letters later on. And if I want you to be able to do a piece of um, algebra, I don't start out with the algebra because you'd never get it. I start out with counting and I work you towards it. And so for some of the children that I work with, they are still on that journey and it's important that I pick something that they can access. And for other children who have sensory processing differences or sensory processing disorder, knowing where things are on that journey. Is really useful for finding experiences that can either be calming or reassuring, or understanding why some experiences are bothering them and others aren't. So it's like a, it's a nice tool if you're being a sensory detective. So I look for yeah stuff that draws the attention of a sense, stuff that fills a whole sense, and and stuff that's developmentally good. And I also try always to use stuff that's cheap or free, because I think if you're doing inclusive stuff but you're using something somebody else can't afford how, how inclusive you're being so yeah my shed i have a sensory shed out in the back garden and it's full of things that other people would put in their recycling
0: i was going to ask i'm literally picturing you in like a big thing where he had all those toys around him and he to play with them as an adult <laughs> i was about to say do you have a place where you go to where you just play with them and you've already answered my question
1: yeah yeah the sensory shed they are all out in the shed not in the house um, but yeah
0: So you go literally oh this will be good and you do that thing where you go well, out Well I and can about. go
1: through and yeah just sort of there's boxes things on the shelf and recently because obviously we're recording this at the still within a global pandemic when people have been losing their sense of smell due to coronavirus the regaining of your sense of smell after illness is something that's been studied previously and so there are studies that show that if you practice smelling, even when you can't smell, it gets you sort of back up and running quicker than if you just wait for it to come back. And there are particular smells that are useful for that. It's like like smell exercise. <laughs> and so recently I've been out in the shed making these smell exercise kits for people who've lost their smell from coronavirus. I
0: think I missed that Joe Wicks episode. <laughs>
1: I'm sure he'd like it. You just need like reasonably different types of smell.
0: So you are talking. You are literally you are. You listen to a book and you might be doing some sounds, but that feeling things, the hearing things, changing what you're seeing, anything like that, which helps people, I suppose, immerse and feel the story more and understand the story more, is what you're really going for.
1: Yeah. So. For my stories that I create on the sensory projects, I share the sensory stimulation in a monosensory way across a multi-sensory story. So at any one time, you will be being asked to smell yep. or you will be being asked to look or you'll be being asked to hear. I won't be asking you to do those things all at once. Yep. And there's lots of lovely sensory equipment and different equipment is useful for different people. So you might have a resource in your classroom that I've got some things in the shed that like light up and play a song and jump around. So they're sort of threefold sensory and they're super engaging. And for somebody who needs a lot of stimulation to connect, yeah. they're really useful. But for a lot of people it's too much. And although it's really interesting, it doesn't get you to an emotional state that you want in your classroom. It just gets you frantic. Um for some of the learners that I work with They've got very complicated brains and they might have capacity across all their sensory systems but only have processing capacity to manage the information from one or two at a time. And what can happen for them is that if they're offered lots of multisensory resources, it looks like a load of fun. It looks like you're providing a really rich range of sensory stimulation, but their brains will prioritise the sense that they're best at. And so they end up with just one sensory experience, Going Quite often it's hearing. They prioritize hearing, so they'll hear everything, but they won't get to feel it and they won't get to smell it, and they won't get to like look. Whereas if I provide it in a monosensory way, they get to have all the different sensory experiences. so that's that's that end of the spectrum as it were. Yeah. If you go up to um you know using it, I've had an email from a lady recently who'd used sensory stories to help her son revise for his GCSEs and she said all the subjects that he did sensory stories in he did better at than the subjects where she hadn't been able to make him a sensory story and that's that was such a like a brilliant little example because what happens in your brain when you have a sensory experience is it activates I'm waving my hands around and we're on a podcast it activates the you know the different processing parts in your head yeah. and the more sensory you're learning the more parts of your brain like switch on to it and so quite literally, the more bre- the more of your brain is involved in your learning and the more of your brain you can get invested in your learning, then the more of your brain is there to remember it. And you think about the lessons you remember from school yourself. They'll be like the ones with the Bunsen burner in, right? They're the ones that had a sort of multi-sensory element to them. It's just easier to pay attention and engage with a sensory object. And so the stories act like a really... G- gorgeous mnemonic for a topic so I have a sensory story called the birth of a star and it is told in seven sentences so it's a really short one and it is scientifically accurate and I had some physicists help me write it really like top level people and um, so I know it's scientifically accurate and it tells how stars are formed in stellar nurseries and the sensory experiences that accompany it also Convey the science of that story. So, the, the first bit is the um, hydrogen clouds that stars are formed from. And the sensory experience is a, a big handful of confetti thrown up. And so, it's an interesting visual experience because it fills your vision, it moves, it's different colors. Sometimes I make it out of white hole punchings and fluoresce it under UV light because you can buy just like a little three pound UV light bulb yep. and screw it into a standard fitting. And then it looks like firework going off. And from a scientific perspective, the dispersal of the particles in the confetti cloud is very similar to the dispersal of particles in the hydrogen cloud. So you have a visually accurate representation of what's going on in the hydrogen clouds. And then the next part is about the gravitational pull as the cloud dust all fall together. And the experience is, so I should have said at the start, I run to seven senses on the sensory projects generally. People know the famous five. Yeah. So I I generally include your vestibular and your proprioceptive sense as well. Once you start dealing in subconscious senses, it's a bit like gateway drugs, and it's very easy to slide into more. (laughs) So quite often now I'm on to eight. Um, I get into Twitter chats with people who go, do you realize there's nine sensory systems? Do you realize there's 11 sensory systems? Like, Yeah, I do. But I've only got 10 sentences to tell a story in, so it's no use to me if there's 11 senses, because I'm trying to cover all of the senses in a sensory story if if you want to be technical about it you have 33 sets of neurons that control your senses so arguably you've got 33 senses um but uh, sorry i was doing the gravitational pull which is we just pull on a piece of bungee cord and that actually stimulates your proprioceptive sense because it puts resistance through your muscles so it gives you information about where your body is in space and the meaning of that word pull I would argue, is there more in that sensory experience than it is in the four letters that we ascribe to it? Yes. Because you're feeling the meaning, and that gives you access to sort of a deeper understanding of what's being talked about when you're talking about these abstract concepts. This gravitational pull out, that's somewhere in space, and you pull it down, and and so the story goes on. But I've run that story as a whole terms worth of science, taking it sentence by sentence. So. For the first sentence about the hydrogen gas clouds that's particle theory that you're dealing with there and if you start at a sensory level and differentiate up for particle theory you can cover you know you can you can do that thing that people always do with solids liquids and gases where you get the children to hold hands and stand close together and they're a solid and then you shake somebody a bit and they move apart a bit and they're a liquid and then you tell them to run and somebody lets go of hands and they become a gas you can do that sort of thing you can get my um I, I used to teach some um, superbly intelligent autistic students. I could have sent them off and said, go and research particle theory online. And they'd have come back telling me stuff I could never understand. But like, yeah, sounds like you're on topic. That's fine. Um, y- you can study it and you can bring it all the way back around to the sensory and just chuck a load of ball ballpubbles across the floor. You're still watching particle theory happen. And the fascinating thing for me is the scientists that helped me to write that story some of them are currently physicists who are pushing forth the boundaries of our knowledge. You know, these are guys who work in the Max Planck Institute. They're studying um, at, at the edge of human understanding, and the experiments that they run look very like the sensory end of things. It's it's not, it's not like it's a line that goes straight. It's a loop that comes back round. Because one of them, his experiment is he has. Um, Grains of sand that he's hand-picked under a microscope, like two million particles of sand that it's taken him half a year to just pick out under a microscope to make sure they're all about the same size. He has them in a little perspex bo- box and he shakes it up and down and watches what happens. And He's been doing that for nine years, shaking the sand up and down and watching what happens. And like, If you have little people who are willing to do repetitive stuff and watch it, really closely, you have top-level experimental physicists. That's what science is at its fundamental level. It's about looking and listening and watching and observing our environment. It is sensory. So you, you take each of those sentences and you study it in richer detail. And by the time you get to the end of term, Everybody can tell the story by heart. It's only seven sentences long and you remember it. it. sticks in your brain because you've had the visual experience, you've had the touch experience, you've had all those things that go with it. And it connects up to all of that other learning. So you can see the mum who made her son revision materials, GCSE revision materials that were sensory stories, you can see why it would work because he would go into that example and remember that sensory story and then connect it all out. So yeah, it has. those are the two ends of the scale. And then there's a, like a middle end, which middle bit, which would be people who struggle with language. And there's a particular utility then. Or people who have sensory differences. There'd be another utility. There. <laughs> I'm just watching you sort of nod and smile at me. I warned you, I am their number one fan. I think they're brilliant. And I'm so surprised that people didn't know about them in the, in the Senko forums.
0: I am just sitting here loving watching you be so passionate <laughs> And all the little bits I wanted to say you've hit on, because as you said, we think of sensory stories and sensory stuff as PMLD, as the complex, because they can't access reading, writing. We have to do it this way. And then once they can read and write, we'll stop that. Yes. So you often see that. And um, Dr. Susie Nyman, who I think we had a three-way conversation at the TES show on last day you came along, she, we, we've done the multi she's a very multi-sensory at sixth form level and the way she does it yeah. she gets sweets involved she does this balloon she made a balloon digestive system on the podcast she draw the heart she's doing at sixth form so it's what I really love about it is it's making people realize that this benefits everyone it's not a yeah. just for PMLD And you know, well I don't have anyone at that level so I don't need to do this is actually this benefits all and we had um uh, and it's fun. Yes. We let Al start on who does music and it's the songs which get stuck in your head with a rhythm yeah. Yeah. that will help you learn things. Because I think you learn nursery rhymes, it's the phonology. It's the rhythm of the words, which helps you remember them. Which helps. So when you yeah. have that song, you have that rhythm, it's stuck in your head. And if you're doing that, so all these sensories, the more we do it, the easier the learning is.
1: Yeah. We met at the TES SEN conference and I did a, seminar for them a few years before we met that was called sensory strategies for all and I co presented it with a teacher friend of mine who teaches in a really posh private school teaching a like a Hogwarts type place he teaches math maths a level and I did a little intro to our seminar it was it was in the huge auditorium we were fully booked And I don't know, there'd been some mess up on tickets. So we had like two extra rows of people who just sat cross-legged on the floor. We were so booked out. People were really interested. And he he was the main show. He was talking about the sensory strategies he uses to teach A-level math and how it was impacting his learners. And he made a really clear point in that. He said, maths, once children, we use a lot of sensory resources with maths in the early years. You've got blocks and things you're manipulating. And as soon as children grasp the abstract concept, we take them away. But if you continue to use them, there is deeper learning to be had from continuing to manipulate them and things like that. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a great thing.
0: It is. Because we, we, you see, I, I'm very much, I like putting what I learn into context where generally I'm thinking it in something I'm going to do. So although I, I'm not physically doing it, I'm literally watching myself do it visually in my head. So I'm literally, oh, so I do this. So I don't, I can't just sit there and listen to information. I have to do something with it. And I'm often, you tell me something until I put it into practice and I've done it myself, I don't really believe it. I have to see it and do it and feel it. Like, is it kinesthetic or yeah. whatever it is? Um, it's the same sort of thing with centuries, hearing it. But that whole thing like pull, that's a really interesting yeah. listen to it. If you pull a door, you're mm. moving a door. If mm. you're pulling something across a table, you just think it's moving. And if you just go right, move over here. But when something outside of you is pulling against you like a bungee cord and it's round your yeah. waist and it's pulling you, that's a very different feeling. You're literally going, well, yeah, I don't want to go this how- way, but I'm being pulled backwards.
1: <laughs> that Expanding each of those sentences to fill a lesson, you could easily expand that sentence to fill half a term because it pushes and pulls, forces and motion, isn't it? You've got loads of stuff there. But you attach all that learning to that sentence. And then when you carry that sentence forward, you carry that learning forward. And it's what we do when we make mnemonics to remember stuff that we provide. But there's an interesting thing happens in the brain when you acquire language. When you acquire language, it changes the structuring in your brain. It changes the way you lay down memories. It changes the way you retrieve memories. It acts like a filing cabinet in the mind. And for people who haven't fully acquired language or people who are using um, maybe a language that's not familiar or people who are not language users, you might not have that same um, structuring or that same orientation in your brain. And so by putting it in a sensory level, you've got access to that organization of information that enables your retrieval of it because it's not just knowing the stuff, it's being able to remember it. And if I think of the science lessons that I could teach around the birth of a star, I could do the particle theory one where we chuck up confetti and ball pull balls and we pretend we're solids, and gases. And then next week we come back and do pushes and pulls, forces in motion. We could slide cars down ramps and pull each other along on little toy trucks and things. And if I just did those lessons, each of those lessons would look, you know, I'd be happy for Ofsted to walk in. It would look very engaging. There would be objectives on the board. Everything would be great. But you talk to the kids at the end of term, and they'd remember that they have fun, but they wouldn't necessarily remember what it was about or what they were doing or how it connected, One what one lesson meant to the other lesson. But if you've got it all collected up like that, you talk to them at the end of term and they know what they did and they know why and they know what it's about. And it's, it's yeah, it's a more rounded experience. It's a, it's a bit like topic work, isn't it? When it's all more connected. Yes. You're like You can teach the same information, but if you teach it in a really linear, dry way. It doesn't go in as well as if you can enrich it in some way.
0: We were really fortunate with our children. We'd, we'd find out what they were doing in school. What's, your, what's this? What's this? What's this topic coming? What's your topic coming up? Are oh, we doing the solar system? Right. We're going to head down to Winchester. There's a yeah. science centre. There's a planetarium. Let's go do that. What's your topic this time? It's the Romans. Right. Uh, down in Chichester, there's a big Roman house with some mosaic floors. Let's go down, yeah. down there. Dress up
1: You've as Romans. <laughs>
0: yeah. So we generally, whatever, they were, we are really lucky that we were able to go and kind of try and bring it to life. So they went into school and they're talking about it, as you said, often in a dry way. But actually they've been, they've seen, and it makes more sense.
1: I think sometimes people think that you have to have, because um, as you said that, like often in a dry way, I was thinking about my son's school. And you think, no, his lesson's, like the teachers they're making volcanoes at the moment out of pop bottles they're definitely doing an effort to bring it to life and I think sometimes you can feel like you should have all singing all dancing like multi-walled projections and fancy bits of equipment and science stuff and all of that when actually a piece of bungee cord can count and can be really meaningful uh, uh, some shredded up bits of paper just chucked in the air these are not high like you don't need a budget to get these things. <laughs> you just use, use a piece of old nickel elastic. It doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be anything spectacular. It's the relevance of it and the and the richness of the sensation that accompanies it that supports the meaning.
0: But I, I never found that making a volcano meant anything to me. It was like, oh, we're gonna do oh it went pop. But there's videos oh, on YouTube that. where you watch someone and they go, let's put a can of Coke in front of this lava. <laughs> that's phenomenal. When you see the scale of a volcano in a video and you see mm. that and just how fast, that's got more of an effect than us putting some bicarb in a bottle and watching it come out. I don't get the scale and the yeah. heat and the damage and the destruction. Because when you do this bubble, you, you, you rub it all off and your paper's still there type things yeah so
1: not enough destruction going on in classrooms no, I'll, I'll, I'll write to my son's teacher <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned in your introduction you mentioned social stories and that can be an interesting overlap because if you're doing something if you're looking to create a social story about something that has a sensory aspect to it there can be huge benefit to doing it as a sensory story so there's one, there's actually a free one on my website at the moment. So my my website has the stories that are published on the sensory projects, and it has the children's book sensory stories. But there's one about going kayaking that I did. Um, I've been doing a project with Exeter University and some outdoor pursuit centers near me. And the researcher that I'm working with at Exeter has a remit for making nature more inclusive, so giving access to nature. And she looks at, Populations who struggle with their access to nature, it's like people with dementia and people with learning disabilities, people with physical disabilities. And I've met her before, and she's like, Maybe we could do a sensory story. Maybe that would build access. And I worked with some, like, <laughs> we've got this outdoor pursuit center. It's the Lizard Adventure Center. They're so inclusive. They're like, We can get anybody out on the water. We can, if you've got, you've got a wheelchair, we can get you in a canoe. It's fine. There's no such thing as somebody can't get in. I was like, There are people. For whom it's not okay if you take them in a canoe. I don't mind if you can lift them in and if you canoe's still it's not gonna be okay. And so we made a sensory story that describes the sensory experiences of going kayaking. So it's it's going. It's not the kayaking, it's the bit from when you get out of your car until you're on the water and paddling. It's that it's it's that going part, it's yeah. that transition between you weren't kayaking and then you were kayaking. And that sensory story has the sensory experiences. I had so much help from the kayakers. I had one guy who's super committed to kayaking. Um, I, I can't remember. It, yeah. I, I don't need to tell you too many stories about kayakers, but they're a special breed of people. Um, He filmed himself going kayaking. He just put the, like GoPro camera down in the boot of his car. I got to watch him change into his wetsuit. I saw his inner thigh. I was like her <laughs> and saw everything. But it's really neat, sort of, these are the sensory experiences in order. And it was interesting for me because I spotted something in the video that I wouldn't have spotted in real life.
0: Apart from his inner I'm thigh. Because I'm used to
1: kayaking, <laughs> apart from his inner thigh. It's always pleased to see an inner thigh. Um, I, I've got some old kayaks at the bottom of the garden you know, I can go kayaking. Whenever I liked, I figured, I I know the sensory experience is kayaking. And it was only watching his video that I realized how much louder the sea gets as you get close to it. It's not something I've noticed in real life. When you got out of his car, you could hear the sea in the background. And he'd walk down the beach. It's like, whoa, you can really hear the sea. And you think, I'm not somebody who's particularly sensitive to the auditory world. There are aspects of the auditory world that I'm sensitive to, but I would never have noticed that. But somebody with sensory differences, that would be a big deal for And so we created this series of sensory experiences that are just, there's no storytelling in it. It It's just literally, these are what you will experience and this is the order that you experience them in. And for the people who can't go kayaking, who really genuinely can't go kayaking, even if you are the Lizard Adventure Centre, that story provides the sensory experience of going kayaking when they can't access it. But we're also using it with people who struggle with Um, sensory differences for whom those sensory differences might be a barrier to access for kayaking so like there's a 14 year old lad at a secondary school near me and it's a mainstream secondary and he's all right I mean he's not having a happy time at school but he's basically okay at school and then once a year their school does activities week where they take they come off curriculum and they do all sorts of exciting fun activities and he's supposed to enjoy it and for him, it's a total freak out situation because suddenly once a year, everything changes and he is not OK with that. Nothing is normal. Nothing is predictable. It's a very stressful week for him. And his family do a lot of like outdoor pursuits. They're very nature based people. And last year, or it might have been the year before because lockdown does funny things to your brain. Um, they took him windsurfing. He was supposed to go windsurfing for the day. And they took they like bust them to the beach. They got them through the bit where they're supposed to put on the wetsuits. Just he totally freaked out and was shut on the bus for the day. Taken home to his mum in disgrace. He's been you know he's been really difficult. And she said, well, you know he has a diagnosis of autism. You know he has sensory differences. What provision did you put in place? And they went, well, he was just naughty. Like no. It's a big ask to go to like an outdoor pursuit center, put on wet, cold wetsuits. As some nobody likes that as a sensory experience. That's that's really asking a lot. And we did the kayaking sensory story with him, it's like you're going to go kayaking. You gonna put wetsuits smell a particular way. You know, yes. you're going to wear a wetsuit. We can prep them. We can, you know, can he have a dry wetsuit to put on? Because it's bigger ask to put on a wet wetsuit. And and so and then one of the experiences in that story is the feel of the wet sand on your feet as you walk down the beach. And that was the one he flipped out at. He just, he's like, oh, I can't, can't handle that. Can't handle, no, not doing it. And you're like, ah, I bet that was the point at windsurfing where he lost it and got put back on the bus. You see, I say to him, well, you can do it with your socks on if you like. Yeah, all right. And he can walk on the sand. So he just needs that little bit of information to go to school. When you take him kayaking, dry wetsuit, please. And he can leave his socks on. And if they make those adjustments, those are not, you know, reasonable adjustments don't have to be expensive. Just the understanding of that counts. It doesn't cost anything to do that. Well, if somebody will have to dry the wetsuit. Somebody has to take a bit of time to dry the wetsuit. Dry wetsuit socks on, I hope he gets to go kayaking time. That will create the access. So you are you can use sensory stories to remove sensory barriers to access.
0: That's brilliant. And, and, it, is, other things. and it is just that thing where people go... Oh, it's actually no you got you have to pick it apart what are the steps and what you yeah. would just discount as a neurotypical person as just do this and I used to go sailing and if you wore a wetsuit one day and put it on the following morning <laughs> nothing else can really different describe putting on a wet wetsuit oh uh,
1: yeah that's grim <laughs> it's
0: it's literally it's you know, you get wet, wet tea towel, put it on your leg. Yeah, it kind of, yeah. kind of sticks to you. It's a whole wet body tea. thing, mm. and you have to put it on. You literally it's have cold. to.
1: They smell funny. Like,
0: sl- and it's not easy to pull up because it's wet, so it's even harder to pull up.
1: And it's easier to deal with that in the story. In the con- like that story was shared with him at home, so he can sit on his own sofa and it can proceed at a pace that he's comfortable with, and he can stop doing the story and walk away and go to the kitchen and get a drink and come back rather than trying to teach him to manage that experience on the beach as it's happening. So it's the rehearsal for, it. it's the things, it's like social story, it's what you would do. You would read the social story in advance of the situation happening and then you proceed like that. And I
0: learned, I hated putting on wet wetsuits, so I always made sure I, was, hung, at home, I hung my wetsuit up. <laughs> so it is, so what we, generally typical people, you, as an adult, you can make choices, you can make decisions. You're kind of aware which, which, um, what you don't like, and you might analyze it after it's going, I didn't like that. I won't do that again. Most of these young children don't have those skills, they don't have those communication skills, they don't know how to present that. Um, yeah, it was something I can't remember where I got it from, but it was a fascinating thing. I was something on the podcast. It is every time a child does something, they're generally doing it for the first time, and we expect them to get it right.
1: Yeah i think that the other thing is your sensory experiences are primary you can't I, I think the only place as a society that we recognize that we sense things differently is with food like if you invite people to dinner you ask them is there anything you like don't like you don't assume that they will have the same experience of taste that you have yeah but we will happily assume that across the other senses like the the one is the the loudness of your music as a teenager isn't that that music is too loud it's dark in here let's put some lights on we we sort of rule on the other senses and if you are somebody who perceives the world in a sensorially different way there isn't anything oh this is a t- it's a slight tangent but it's um it's it, it's a, it's a bugbear of mine i said i think i said it as we started i said sensory processing disorder or sensory processing differences because I want to distinguish those two groups one from another. They tend to get understood as one wholesale group. And this awareness of sensory processing differences is relatively new. And it, it's like um, it's like when our awareness of ADHD surged in the 90s. Suddenly, like everybody in the 90s had ADHD. And people would go, oh, it's just a phase. It's just a fad. It's just an excuse for bad parenting and all, all that sort yeah. of nonsense and now everybody's got sensory needs Like, oh, i has got sensory needs sensory needs you can you can go onto websites click things and be, oh i've got sensory needs oh yeah they're great and it's um <laughs> i'm joking about it it's, it's actually a good thing isn't it because it shows a broader public awareness that people perceive things at a sensory different level um but it also has a a negative kickback in that because we're all sort of aware about it then we don't take it seriously because we assume that somebody else's sensory needs are just our sensory needs and when we don't like our socks being a bit folded at the end of our shoe that must be what they're experiencing too and they just need to get on with it and pull their socks up
0: we think, um yeah, there's the things i like the things i don't like that's yeah. the range whereas their range is more can or can't yeah and in between
1: and the two groups they did the research in i think it's 2006 or 2009 that showed physiological differences in the brains of people with sensory processing disorder. So your senses essentially have volume controls in your brain and theirs are broken. Like they're set too high, they're set too low, or they're like too greasy they slide around. And there is, it's a physical difference, just as not having a leg is a physical difference. There's nothing that they can do about that. That is how it's going to be, and I recognize that the brain is neuroplastic, so it's not quite as straightforward as not having a leg, but the brain is nowhere near as neuroplastic as it gets made out to be, especially not when you're older. Um, so they have a physiological difference. I'd be willing to bet, and this is me speculating, normally when I talk about things, it's because I've read research about something and I can evidence it somewhere. This is a speculation. If you took all the people currently identified as having sensory needs and looked for that difference in the brain, I think you'd find only a small fraction of them have it. Which is not to say that the others don't have sensory needs. I just think the needs stem from a different place. And then this is something that we were talking about um, earlier with the development of the senses. You have a development that your sensory systems run through and your later sensory skills are founded on your early skills just as your ability to do algebra is founded on your ability to count if you've missed one of your early skills your later processing can be a bit i i met a kid like this i met i i used to have a job inspecting schools for their provision for children with special needs and disabilities and i was in one of these schools as an inspector and i had i had a very um, I wasn't like an off-stead inspector. And I was not old enough to do that. I was just there for the SEN kids. Um, and I used to have a, a – my my way of doing it was just go in and keep quiet and seem pleasant and hope people would tell me stuff rather than go in and be all like inspectorial and ask them questions. Yeah. And after I'd been there for a while, the staff thought I was friendly. And they said, we've got this kid in year nine, and his maths is – we can't work out what's going wrong with his maths. And what was happening was that some days he was doing his maths just right. Like he was doing long division and setting it all right, getting the right answer. And some days he was getting it spectacularly wrong. And they were like, he's concentrating on both. It's not like he's messing around on that day. We've watched him in lessons. It's just some days he gets it and some days he doesn't. And because on the days when he got it, they could see that he under, they're like, we don't know what we haven't taught him because he can do it. Look, he knows all the steps. Here he is doing it on Tuesday and then on like Thursdays off. And I sat with that kid for a couple of days, and my theory—and obviously I can't test this—he didn't have a concept of number. You know, it's before counting in your development maths. It's the understanding of how muchness the number is. It's like one and many. It's what people do with children in the early years, where they've got one thing and then lots of things. Or those counting systems that you hear about where, with tribes that go one, two, three, many—it's it, it's the how muchness of number. And so for him, numbers were all the same muchness so when he did five times five is 25 that was as plausible to him as five times five is two million and six and so he couldn't evaluate his answers and check oh. and at a sensory level if you've missed out on an underpinning bit of sensory development in your early childhood your later processing can be out of whack you know sometimes it can be fine and sometimes it can be off and so if you look at how the different senses, develop, there are, there are like obvious things to point to. So we were talking about your proprioceptive sense, which is your awareness of where your body is in space. Yep. That one is wired in through bold directional. Oh, no, it's through the rough and tumble play of childhood. I was thinking of vestibular sense. Your vestibular sense is your sense of motion and balance, which is wired in. Through bold directional movement in childhood, it's going on swings, it's jumping on trampolines, it's rolling down a grassy bank, um, it's the spinning around, you know, twizzling yourself up on a swing and untwizzling yourself. That's what wires in that sense. If you've ever had a gadget phone and it needs you to set the compass, it gets you to tilt the phone backwards and forwards, and like it's like that. It's the it's what we do. It's what we do with babies. We like rock them side to side. We push them forwards, and backwards in the pram, and then you pass them to their daddies and their daddies lob them up into the air, which is like in all other aspects of a baby's life, we treat them really, really carefully. But that thing of throwing babies into the air is done universally. Everybody who has a baby does that to it. It's part of the wiring in of that sense. If you have had lots of those experiences in childhood, if you've been on lots of swings, if you've rolled down lots of grassy banks, if you've frizzled yourself up, Your vestibular senses had the chance to wire up. If you spent a lot of your childhood seated, so people who are wheelchair users, um, people who are playing a lot of computer games, people who have got a lot of screen time. And I'm not in any way against screen time. I'm a big um, internet, you know, geek. I love social media. I'm online all the time. It's just when that activity displaces other activities that you needed, then you'll have an issue. And so your later ability. Your vestibular sense underpins your ability to sort of sit still. And your ability to sit still is intri- intricately part of your ability to give visual in- in- attention. So, like when you're a little wiggly person on the carpet, you can't see what's happening on the board properly because your head's wobbling around all the time and you have had the chance, and they just sort of follow on from each other. And so, the people who have sensory processing differences, what they need, what that kid who I met needed, was the chance to go back and just play with muchness, like this is a lot of stuff, this is not much stuff. If you go back with them over those early sensory experiences, and a lot of the sensory therapies, this is what they're doing, they're providing opportunities to rehearse these underpinning sensory experiences, then those differences can be leveled out. But for the people who've got the physiological difference, being asked to do that is being asked to continually put yourself in a situation that will be sensorially difficult for you and that's just cruel. Um, so it's it's useful to have those, just the two, that was too long a tangent. It was a long tangent. I, right to I have many sensory questions, stories. which I won't
0: dive into, but my nephew has an interesting thing. He, there was always once a year that as a school they would go do this thing in the church, they'd all have to sing, and he hated it. He couldn't cope. He'd cover and cover his ears. Mm. He, oh, So it's a sensory thing. Yeah. Apart from the fact he would happily go to Manchester Airport with the planes taking over his head.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So with nothing sensory. It was. It's not
1: necessarily nothing sensory. It it's was... the other things that go on around it.
0: Yes. So while this is going on, he's happy. He can always like he can control that. He doesn't get out of yes. control. But when he's going, well, I don't want to be here, and he's in. Then the, the control part of that disappears.
1: It's it's it's. We all have that experience, don't we? Like if you're ill. Your ability to tolerate sensory experiences changes dramatically. If you're pregnant, your ability to respond to sensory. For me, I can wear perfume on a normal day, but if something bad happens to me on that day and I get worried, I have to wash the perfume off because I can't handle the smell when I'm stressed.
0: It's like when you're parking, you turn the volume down.
1: Yes, exactly. People turn the volume down when they're parking. Yeah, it's that.
0: But it's fascinating. You sit there and you look at it. So we all do it at a certain levels. Mm. Um, but for some, it's, there's no control. They've got no. It's not a choice thing. Yeah, it's
1: that you can't choose because it's your first source of information. We use it in our language. You know, we say, "I saw it for myself. I heard it with my own." This means it, it's true. And if your senses are telling you that this is a problem, it doesn't matter how much you understand that it's not a problem. There is nothing that you can do to override that. The only way to address that problem is through sensory communication no matter how, you know, able you are.
0: And you, can, you go into senses and you think seeing is seeing and hearing is hearing. There's so much more. So I remember watching a programme of oh, this yeah. woman who could see everything, but she never got the face. So every yeah, time you met yeah. her, you go, hi, I'm Joe." And, oh, yeah, she knows who you are, but she wouldn't recognise yeah. you from the face and she would never recognise her husband. You could walk out yeah. of the room to make a cup of tea, come back in, it's like, it's your husband. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then the woman whose refresh rate on her eyes, I'm going to say refresh rate. So she saw static pictures, which updated every two seconds. Yeah. So when the, and there was like a picture they did on the underground of this is what it would look like for her. And it was like, that's horrible. Oh,
1: God. It's, there's just so many things. Yeah. Fascinating.
0: And hearing the same because when you're listening, you're generally, you're focusing on someone. If you're in a restaurant, you're generally, you're sitting opposite someone and you're listening to them and you've put your focus. And your amazingly clever head is bringing down all the other noise And you're constructing, and you can hear them.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: But not everyone has that.
1: No, no, the filtering of one sensory experience from another is a huge one. I, I run a training day called exploring the impact of the senses on behavior. And these are all like massive topics within that. But if you, things like eating is a phenomenally difficult sensory task to perform. And the filtering is really important because the sound of your eating is not generally a sound that anybody likes. And you hear it because it's right next to your ear, isn't it? Your mouth. But if you don't hear it when you eat, it's because you've learned to filter out that information. It's not because it's not there. And for people who can't yet do that filtering, it's just such a massive ask to deal with it all at once. And if it's happening to you at a sensory level, you have to respond with, I'm I'm saying sensory communication, which probably doesn't mean anything to people, but you have to respond at a sensory level and it gets very exciting when you start doing the other senses (laughs) because my eighth sense that I'm slipping into now is your interceptive sense which is a really unique sense amongst your senses because it's the only sense that looks inwards all the others look outwards and so your other senses are to do with explore mostly your senses are there to go is it food and make sure I don't become food like eek monster and can I eat this is it safe or maybe you know do I want to have sex with you that's Our senses are there at a survival level. And your interceptive sense is the one that looks at, looks at what's going on in, inside you. And so it's the one that you rely on for reporting emotions. And you can have emotions, but not have the ability to see them. So like, You need two words because it's the sense that feels your feelings. There is a process through which you have feelings and then you look Recognized. at them. And, and that's how you can report them. So ordinarily, when you say to somebody, how are you feeling? They just go, oh, feeling happy because they feel happy and it feels like a direct thing. But the way that they do that is by looking at their feelings with this sensory system. And you can have differences in that sensory system. If you have impaired interception, you can still have the feelings, but you won't spot them so easily. And so, f- for example, if, um, if somebody with fully functional interception is around somebody who irritates them, they're going to be around them for like 30 seconds think you're really annoying and go away and not make friends with them. If you're somebody who's got an impairment to your interception, you might be around this person who's annoying. You won't get that instant understanding of that. You still get annoyed, but there's no sort of instant knowledge of that. And so you can end up in situations that are much harder for you to deal with because you weren't able to respond. I met a boy once. He said, I knew I was angry because I hit him. It was that way around. He'd observed from his behaviour that he'd hit the other guy, and he'd figured, "Oh, that must mean I'm angry." He he didn't feel angry, and so he hit him. But he was angry. His his being angry was there without his feeling of being angry being there. And understanding that difference and how that's affecting people's emotional sort of responses and regulations behaviour, you know, is yeah, it's a really interesting.
0: Because you can do that. With like, if we think of stress, mm. you don't always recognise when you're stressed. No. Until after <laughs> you go, God, I was so stressed. But it's it's like that on a very much more primeval level, isn't it? The sense, yes, yeah. not being able to recognize You're not in the middle of it. You're stressed. You're really stressed, but you don't realise how stressed. Until yeah, I'm wondering. You've got put rid of it. So you probably you wrote your book and you probably got quite stressed and you finished it and you went, oh. <laughs> Oh, oh, this is a different feeling. Oh, that's really drained me, type thing.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering at what point in the conversation you should confess to being one of these people. So I have impaired interception, and I don't necessarily feel my feelings.
0: I'm not bad. I'm not bad on my feelings. I feel my anger build. I can feel, but but I think it's the longer term things. It's it's the having this conversation makes me feel happy. I'm there. And I'm great. And I'm loving it. But sometimes it's something, as things build up, I don't recognize things.
1: I've found it's been very useful being married because I just get told how I'm feeling. And <laughs> and he's man. right. No, no. He's, he's realized that it's just useful. Because you would look at somebody and assume that they know, wouldn't you? Yeah. And he's realized that I don't know. So he just sort of lets me know. And then I can, you know, if, if you go two or three days and he's gone, you seem stressed today, you seem stressed. You're all like, right, no, I feel fine, I feel fine. And you're like, oh, it's said that again, must be something. You sort of have a look around and try and work out what it is. And then you can stop doing what it is. Before, it, before I was married, I used to regularly have to go to hospital to emergency admission things because, like many autistic people, the stress would manifest itself in different ways and it would come out in... You have a lot of autistic children have problems with their gut and tummies and things like that. And we know a lot more now how our mental health and physical health are connected and how our emotional well-being affects our physical health and affects our immunity and things like that. And so literally just having somebody narrate my emotional landscape to me, has saved the NHS loads of money.
0: (laughs) But it's just... it's. When you look at it, and you got to say, "Look, you're an adult. You're a teacher. I'm an adult. Yeah, my husband has to tell me how I'm feeling because I don't understand. Yeah, I'm a fully functioning yeah. adult typically. Yeah. yeah, but my husband has to. Yeah, yeah. Now think of children. Yeah, you're assuming. I can imagine gets... me at
1: secondary school. Me at secondary school, I got, I got best grades in my year. I was a good little geek. I followed all the rules. I was very quiet. I was socially unaware. I didn't do any of the drinking or the, you know, none of the bad stuff because I was just just on my own, just thinking about things. If somebody could have told me what I was feeling, I would have been life-changing, you know, and if somebody could have talked, because that's the next step, is if you, if you're working with these children, what you do is you just let them know how they're feeling buzz and ask them to rate it on some sort of sliding scale, if you're somebody who's attuned to that child, if you know them well, you probably do know how they're feeling. Like, yes, they they should be the best authority on it, but you might be the best authority on it. You you let them know how they're feeling, and then you tell them how you knew. I can see that you're stressed because you're you're moving. Your movements are faster, aren't they? Look, have you noticed? Like, you're not sitting down. Your shoulders are high up. I can see that you're stressed because you've got. Put your hand here. Can you feel that you've got? bumped here you're frowning I you know can you I, uh, I did it I did it a different way around I did a conference I had so much fun it was a, a conference for portage workers and portage workers are people who get to work with children with disabilities before they go to school and they are some of the most twinkly eyed lovely people you could meet and I did this big conference with a load of portage workers and I had such a fantastic day and I caught the train to my husband's house because we didn't we yeah we moved in together after we got married not before we got married like like old-fashioned people and I when I travel there at the end of an event he just sort of puts me on the sofa and gives me dinner and he put me on the sofa switched the television on made me dinner because he's a lovely man and um I was I got my fingers like dug into my cheeks as I was watching television and bless him he must have waited a good five minutes before we went okay Joe what are you doing <laughs> and i was there with my fingers like dug right into the tops of my cheeks and i looked at him and i hadn't even realized i was doing it i've got got my fingers in my cheeks and i was thinking oh yeah that's is, that's is weird what and i thought like, oh i know i know what it is i said my face is too high up <laughs> it's cuz i was smiling you know when you've smiled so much that your face hurts i was physically trying to pull my face back down <laughs> it's like i
0: know that i know uh, that one
1: yeah and it, i wasn't i i was I was there with my fingers digging into my cheeks and I hadn't noticed I was happy until he told me, but if you could teach me the external markers that you use to know how I'm feeling, and then you could habituate me to look out for those, you really, what I should do, if I was a responsible adult and wanted to look after my mental health a little better, I should sort of, every time I go for a wee, I should just check the bathroom mirror and have a look at my face to see how I look. Um... I should do that I definitely should it's like teaching somebody to brush their teeth like you know it's good for you but nobody wants to learn to brush their teeth do they I'm, I'm too old I'm past it but you have a chance you have a fighting chance with children you could yes. habituate them you know teach them to brush their teeth teach them to do an emotion check and that is a, you know a healthier outcome for your teeth and your emotional health in life
0: oh I love it love it Lo- I love listening to you talk it's like with such passion and such a range of experiences so again you're not just talking about the complex you have mentioned complex but you've also mentioned year nine maths it's a huge range but again it's not something which is just affecting one small group of children
1: no i i cheesely believe it would be good for everybody and I, the, the sensory engagement stuff if you connect with your sensory world there are some lovely mental health benefits from doing that. So as teachers who are a stressed and anxious profession, if you did make a sensory story and you spent a bit of time like touching things and sniffing things, it's probably good for your mental health if you do it.
0: I have found there are certain sounds and smells which make me feel happy. And it is, it's just random things. So we used to go sailing and we used to do lots of camping as a child. So when you have that umbrella up and you're out somewhere quiet and you hear the raindrops hitting the canvas or you've got your hood up and you hear it, just being somewhere like that just make me smile.
1: Yeah, a lot of those things for people are sensory experiences from the early development of senses. If you can find those ones, they are naturally sort of calming and reassuring. It's like a, a feeling of home. That you get from your senses from those ones and it's because your brain can access stimulation for little effort it's like you like like with math people will count to help themselves fall asleep easy to do and your brain can understand it no very few people do algebra to help themselves fall asleep and at a sensory level it's the same sort of thing the sensory experiences from the start of development are ones that tell you you're safe you're home it's okay it's like a warm fuzziness So it can be useful for supporting people with their mental health. One of the sensory story children's books that I wrote was um, each of the children's books that I wrote had a different um, demographic that I was imagining when I chose their sensory resources. So one story is to do with resilience. And another story, the demographic that I was imagining were people in nurture groups. And I chose sensory experiences for that story that are all those sort of like warm, fuzzy, early ones. And smell too. You mentioned smell. Smell's another unusual sense. It's the only one processed by the limbic brain. So it's the only one processed by your emotional brain. The others processed by the thalamus, which is your thinking brain. And so it tends to do an emotional time travel for people to happy memories.
0: And that's the thing is it's amazing. So we were going somewhere and I was very busy. with My, my head was very busy is how i describe it. I had lots going on. I'm thinking about stuff. And yeah. I got out of the car. I put my, my hood on. I put the hood up. And it all disappeared. And I just sat there listening to the rain going. <laughs> it, it was just no conscious effort. I didn't. It, it happened. It just, it took me out of everything I was worrying about. And took me to this lovely little place where I just sat there. And I remember years ago, I was on, I can't remember the name of it, it was um, Sensory Company who do lots of TS shows. I can't remember the name of it. And we were at the bet show and they had the big chair with wings, weighted wings.
1: Oh, wow.
0: And I'm in the middle of this bet show. I should go sit in this chair. I said, why should you sit in it? It was a bit like a bean bag, but in the middle, Mm. but with with a solid frame underneath. And then she put these wings over me, and I'm starting to it. I was chatting to her. And as I'm chatting, about 10 minutes later, I suddenly went, I am so relaxed. Yeah. Yeah, I was in the bet show. Yeah. Hugely busy place, hugely noisy. But the weight of the blanket on me yeah was overruling my other senses.
1: It your sensory trapped. information is primary there's you, the knowledge that you get from your senses counts above all the rest of it you can't you can't argue with it um so yeah use it use it in the positive i put on my facebook page i put little photo albums with makes in and one of the ones i did a, a little while ago was how to make a weighted blanket because they're so popular now and they're they're really simple to make um but yeah it it's Information to your um, proprioceptive sense, your awareness of where your body is in space. And you think about what these senses are for. These senses are for finding food and not becoming food. Your proprioceptive sense is mostly about not becoming food. It's the sense that's going to help you run away. It's the sense that's going to tell you if there's a little insect biting you. It's the sense that is sort of wired for making sure you're not in danger. And something that applies pressure over the body like that goes, This is where you are. And knowing in like bold print where you are, so long as you are safe, you know, so long as there isn't a little insect biting your body or something like that, you know, it, it amplifies that message of I'm here, I'm present, and, and it's okay. You know, like nothing's eating me at the moment. So, yeah, so really it's a simple one to do, but it's very effective.
0: So yeah, we've got um, a duck down duvet which are quite heavy. They're not a weighted blanket; mm. they are quite heavy. When you stay in hotels and you even get that thin, yeah, get home, get into our bed with that duvet, and you feel it, yeah, and then you just have the best sleep. and it is, It's. It's just a few things have just shown me how primal these things are. They are just so core, cool and you can't argue with them
1: no and you think about so if you take it back to teaching and you think about the average classroom what you would want in your classroom if you want really engaged learners is for learners to feel safe at a sensory level because when you feel safe and you're not on alert then you can engage with what's going on and if you don't feel safe you physically cannot you can't you can't lay down memories you can't give attention because your all your cognitive attention will be on you know getting away from the monster and Looking at how our classrooms are laid out, looking at the sound environment and the visual environment and all of those things and creating, you know, curating a space that is sending message of sensory safety would be brilliant. And if you have neurodivergent learners in your classroom, which you do because they're in all classrooms, then um, thinking about the visual landscape is really important because um, people who have neurodivergent conditions often have hypervisual processing. And so they'll see the world in greater detail. And the way their eyes work is different. Most um, neurotypical people. I, I used to explain this with old televisions. You know how old televisions used to scan across the pixels and then update the pixels that had moved and keep the other ones the same? Yep. Different now we've gone digital. But you used to be able to see on the old sets, you used to be able to see, like, a, if you looked really closely, you would see like a little line going. Shh. Going across it as it did the scan so that's how neurotypical site works it scans across and it only updates the things that have moved so it takes like it takes an image of the room and then it just deals with the stuff that changes and leaves the rest of it so you see sometimes like magic tricks or something where there's like a giant cardboard gorilla in a room and nobody has noticed it and it's because it'll be a room they're super familiar with yes. and their eyes just won't have bothered to look at that bit they'll just be relying on the sort of template memory of that bit. And only updating the moving bit. Whereas autistic people see everything every time. So it's a huge amount more energy is spent on vision. And all those little bits of paper and notes that you have on your wall and the pictures and the, the posters that show the thing, they have to read all of that every time they look around.
0: And that's not, and a, choice thing.
1: not, that's a, not choice a choice thing. thing. It's not happening. a choice thing. It just happens. Your visual um, cortex is like a third of your. Um, cerebral processing so you're just massively draining processing capacity if you could just make that wall nice and plain all that capacity comes back to what they might be doing with their work or all that capacity can now be used on coping with the social interactions that they might need more you know coping capacity to handle coping with the other aspect there's no need for them to have to be doing all of that you <laughs> can just roller blinds get like nice color you want um. You either want early developmental, you probably want natural tones like dark greens or earthy browns and just put roller blinds at the top of all your display boards and just pull them down for the teaching because some of the stuff you have to have up, don't you? Like you have to have your yeah. staff list or something mandatory to have it on the wall, but you, you're allowed to cover it, I think.
0: We've gone on lots of tangents today, haven't we?
1: Yeah, sorry, I'm known for that.
0: I wasn't expecting a kayaker's inner thigh to be part of that.
1: <laughs> I wasn't expecting it either.
0: <laughs> so I absolutely loved podcasting, loved learning about um, sensory stories. So I've done multi-sensory stuff, but yeah, hearing about it and just, again, making people think about how the power of it, how it embeds learning has been fabulous. And all the other conversations around sensory has been fascinating. Because you just think, yeah, you see, you hear. No, there's so many more things involved. Yeah. And some control, some not control. Some, as you said, um, some is different, some is. Um,
1: Difference or dis- disorder. Dis- disorder. Disability. Yes. Yeah.
0: Disability. So that's all very different and has very big impacts. And just because you can, doesn't mean everyone can. So you've given me some information to share. Um, you said you're going to send me something, so I'll chase you up on that afterwards. We'll make sure I put it in the show notes which is your guide to sharing sensory stories.
1: Oh, yes. That's free to download from my website. So if cool. my web address is there. I'll find the link. There. and I'll
0: put that in the show notes yeah. as well so people can find that easily. And you'll find um, the show notes. Go on, sorry.
1: No, no. Sorry, right. I was just going to say, as you can tell, I'm very happy to talk about sensory stories. So if anybody wants to send me a message on Facebook or something, I'll merrily chat to people about sensory stories.
0: Excellent. So, yeah, we'll share um, all that information and your contact details, so you can get hold of her on Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, um, and you find them in the show notes um, or you find them on the website. Thank you for listening. So, if you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. If you have no idea where to subscribe, go to our website, which is www.thesencast.com, and you will find links to all the different podcast platforms on there. And if you're on social media, follow Joanne, but also follow us. We are at the Sencast, and on Facebook, we are the Sencast, and on Instagram, the Sencast. And if you listen to us through iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review and let others know what you think. And before we go, once again, as usual, I'm going to remind you about Training for Education. This is our online CPD platform, which is a great way of getting SEND training to everyone in the school. And you'll find a number of the guests on the SENDcast, our speakers at our virtual SEND conferences. Um, and uh, Joanne will be recording one for us later this year. Hopefully, that will be really useful and really great. Training for Education, as I said, it's a great way to get CPD for all staff. It is cost effective, but also extremely effective. And visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift for Sendcast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send conferences, future or past, by using the code Sendcast10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me.
1: Goodbye from me.
0: Bye, everybody.